From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, holiday time usually means family time as generations get together to celebrate. On this special holiday edition of the program, we have our own multi-generational story. A father and daughter who both practice family medicine right here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Sanj Kakar joins as co-host to talk family medicine then and now. Also on the program, we'll revisit a segment on varicose veins. We'll hear about varicose vein treatment options from a Mayo Clinic expert who also shares his fascinating personal history, how magic led to medicine. And drugs that increase healthy aging in mice, coming soon to humans. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Have you ever watched an old movie and seen a doctor making a house call? Well, a lot has changed over the years, but the family medicine doctor, now often referred to as primary care, is still the first stop for patients seeking health and wellness. Primary care providers care for patients of all ages and stages of life, providing services such as preventative exams and screening, well-child exams, pregnancy care, and behavioral care. Primary care physicians also help to manage chronic conditions and treat minor illnesses. Yes, house calls may be a thing of the past, but what else has changed? Well, here to offer some unique perspectives on family medicine then and now are primary care physicians, Dr. John Wilkinson and Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Now, what makes them unique? is that uh, Dr. Wilkinson is Dr. Cozine's father. So welcome back to the program, both of you. It's great to have you here to talk about this. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And we actually both do house calls. You still, And that's what I thought. Uh, I remembered one of the last times that you were on, you said house calls are becoming more common again. How does that even happen in this day and age? It takes uh, uh, a willingness to do it and uh, and some planning and uh, and making patients aware that that's a possibility. I when, made a house call last night. Wow. When did you begin practicing, Dr. Wilkinson? I finished my residency at Mayo Clinic in 1981. I was uh, among the first group of family medicine residents to train here at Mayo Clinic. So, Dr. Cozine, your dad led the way for you, and what made you decide that you wanted to be a family care? What I was interested in is the relationships with the long-term relationships. And in college, I wasn't particularly interested in science, <laughs> but I watched my dad's career. I watched the career of several other primary care doctors in our family and realized, you know, that would be something I would enjoy and be good at, and it's a great way to have an impact on communities. So you're not the only two primary care physicians in the family? I have an uncle who is a family doctor as okay. well. Okay. So it's in the genes, so to speak. Sort of. So yeah. so tell us your your first memory of, of seeing your dad, knowing what he actually does for a living, seeing patients, going on house calls. I don't have any memories of him of not being aware that he wasn't a doctor. Apparently, as a little kid, I would go to the hospital for morning rounds. Um, I was afraid of him when I was a little kid because he was gone a lot, but I got over that. Mm-hmm. So how was that, Dr. Wilkinson, when you took uh, Dr. Cozine on rounds when she was uh, a young baby? How did, that, how, how did the patients take that? Well, that was in the pre-HIPAA days. We <laughs> didn't, didn't worry about those sorts of things, but uh, it was uh, something to uh, uh, connect with the patients, uh, give my wife a break, and, uh, and, and just uh, uh, 
do something fun on a Sunday morning. Hey, it worked out all right for the Mayo brothers to go with their dad, so it worked out fine. So what has changed over the years of working in family medicine, Dr. Wilkinson? I think uh, people uh, are busier and uh, and are uh, have more on their plates and so uh, consequently uh, there's uh, a, a, a slightly greater uh, uh, less willingness to to wait in the waiting room mm. to to wait while the family doctor goes and delivers a baby or or covers uh, the something in the emergency room or the hospital uh, but the the relationships haven't changed and that that's the key thing and, and we need to uh, make sure that we make ourselves available for those relationships and I'm, I'm sure you've seen over the years medicine has changed with more technology how uh, in, fi- uh, in family practice can you stay on top of all the the changes that happen in medicine with so much specialization going on well, 50 years ago before I trained and, uh, and then uh, 30 years ago as I f- was finishing training and, and now that probably 90% of the problems that patients uh, present with uh, we can take care of uh, in the office. We're, we're collaborating much more closely with our specialty colleagues, uh, particularly as we're taking care of people with ongoing chronic uh, illness. There is a primary care shortage, a shortage of physicians who do primary care. What do you, why do you think that is, Dr. Cozine, and what would you say to encourage somebody to become a primary care physician? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think one big reason, particularly in discussing it with my medical school classmates, would be the just the breadth of things that I need oh, to know about. Okay. You know, I'm in my third year of practice, so I'm very early on in my career, but every single day there are things that I don't know what to do with or I have never seen before. That gets really tiring really quickly. And, you know, being an expert and then coming in and saying, oh, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's one thing. I think people are more comfortable when they can definitively say, yes, this is the answer, no, this is the answer. And in primary care, I get more and more mm-hmm. every day uncomfortable with uncertainty. Mm. I think another reason is compensation, which, mm. you know, I'm certainly um, certainly well compensated, but not as well compensated as other physicians. Being a specialist. And so that's, that's, you know, particularly with rising costs of um, educational debt, people are making decisions about their specialty career based on compensation. Dr. Wilkinson, did you encourage your daughter to become a primary care, or did you see what she's just ex- describing and saying, maybe you better be a specialist instead? I always thought she was going to go into the ministry. So. <laughs> I always knew she was going to take care of people, but uh, uh, when she uh, told us uh, at the beginning of uh, second year of college that uh, she was interested in medical school, uh, I, as I recall, I was surprised. But Tracy, how cool is it to have your father uh, in the same specialty as you do? I mean, I'm sure there's stories over the dinner table that you go through back and forth, just picking his brains for ex- the experience that yeah. he has. Everyone else gets really annoyed with that. But <laughs> Well, when, but you, yeah. when you hear her say mm-hmm. that sometimes, you know, having something different every day gets to wear you down, what is your advice to that? My advice is that uh, in this day and age, probably uh, being uncomfortable is uh, something we need to if we're not uncomfortable at least a few times a week, we're probably not stretching ourselves uh, sufficiently. And it's just a fact of life. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very humbling thought because, you know, as physicians, we like to assume we know everything. And to assume we don't is, uh, I think it makes us better. But I think having, I mean, I think we all look back in our life when you have a, a great family care 
provider. I mean, you're so lucky you get to know your patients in a level that, that we can't because you have the time, you've seen them grow up. I think that's just invaluable. And so do you expect that this is what you're going to do, just like your dad, who is just going strong? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this is something that's going to be your life's work, or are you going to become a minister like your dad was? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not bolting yet, but there have been there have been more than one more than one occasion where I've done both a little ministry at the patient's request. Sure. Versus, um, but yeah, I do. I think I think that something like primary care is more of a calling than a career, and um, I've really got to take the long view, especially in these days when. You know, I've got little kids, I've got a lot going on, and um, thinking about what do I want for my career over the long term. And uh, which of your three kids is probably going to end up being a physician? No, I won't make you <laughs> <it> into that. <laughs> I think, you know, actually, you know, that reason you're talking about then and now. Um, obviously, you know, my, my dad's a man and I'm a woman, mm-hmm. and we've had very different career trajectories, and part of that I have to thank the women of his era mm-hmm. who worked hard so that I could have my babies during training, and that was very normalized. And um, it was fine. And I think being a parent has made me a better primary care provider and um, has made it just for great stories, connecting well, with patients. You I've said, said the same thing for years. Uh, people, patients would often say, well, it must be so great to, to be a doctor. You're a better parent to take care of your family. I said, no, no, I, I, I don't think that being a doctor made me a better parent, but I absolutely know that being a parent made me a better doctor. Oh, that's very good. Well, we've been getting a history lesson in family medicine <laughs> then and now with father and daughter, Dr. John Wilkinson and Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Both are family medicine physicians at Mayo Clinic. It was great to see you again. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for having, us. having us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, drugs that destroy cells associated with the aging process have been shown to extend the healthy lives of mice. Scientists hope to try these drugs next on humans. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, as we get older, it's not just our outward appearances that change. Beneath the, the wrinkles and the sagging skin, not you, Tracy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Did I say that, though? No, the wrinkles okay. and the sagging skin. It's actually also inside our bodies that some of our cells are aging, too. Now, these cells have been labeled senescent cells. And they no longer function like they should or like they used to. And then they contribute to frailty and other health conditions that are associated with aging. Things we've all heard about, like stiffening of the blood vessels or atherosclerosis, weak muscles and problems with our, with our brains, Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. There's research underway at Mayo Clinic and elsewhere to find ways to reduce the number of senescent cells in order to delay some of the effects of the aging process. So far, the work has just been done in mice but the results have been encouraging. Recently, drugs called senolytics, which destroy senescent cells, have been shown to improve age-related vascular conditions in mice. Well, here to talk about the research into the aging process is Dr. James Kirkland. Dr. Kirkland is an aging specialist and does research in the Robert and Arlene Kogod Center on Aging at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kirkland. Glad to have you with us. Thanks. It sounds like science fiction, but it's something that's actually coming true. I would have thought it was science fiction a few years ago, but it appears that interventions are coming along that target fundamental aging processes. And if they succeed as hoped in humans, they could potentially delay or prevent or alleviate or even treat 
age-related chronic diseases as a group. Why do our cells age or become senescent? Why does that happen? There are a number of processes that occur over the passage of time to tissues, uh, and they also tend to be, these same processes tend to be accelerated at sites of activity of age-related chronic diseases. For example, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries that leads to heart attacks and strokes. We find the same processes that occur in other tissues in 90-year-olds are active at the sites where these lesions occur that predispose to heart attacks and strokes. They also tend to be active around the plaques that occur in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. They tend to occur in fat tissue in people who get diabetes. They occur at the sites where cancers develop in older individuals and may accelerate and predispose to those cancers. They occur in joints and osteoarthritis, the kind of arthritis that older people get. And the list goes on. So we've known for some time that aging is the largest risk factor for most of the diseases and conditions that we see in our patients in hospital or elderly people who are combating to try to maintain their independence. And it's such a big risk factor that it dwarfs all other risk factors put together. For example, your risk of having a heart attack or stroke is elevated maybe two to fourfold if you've got a positive family history, if you've got a high cholesterol, if you've got high blood sugar, if you've got high blood pressure. But if you're 85 as opposed to 30, your relative risk is a thousandfold. And the same is true with all of these other major conditions that drive the bulk of healthcare costs and mortality in our older population. So this has led people to question, can we target fundamental aging processes themselves to try to delay all of these diseases as a group instead of picking them off one at a time? Isn't there a bit of a philosophical issue here? I mean, do you really want so many people to live significantly longer than they do now? Won't that ultimately be socially and economically a huge problem? We don't know that people would necessarily live longer. This could be a side effect of targeting these fundamental aging processes. We want them to live healthier. So the goal is not to have people living to be 130 and feeling like they're 130. It might be to have people living till they're 80, but feeling like they're 50 or 60. And indeed, the economic implications have been studied. The main drivers of health costs are these age-related chronic conditions. If we cured one of them, the next one would occur in those same people a few months or a couple of years later. So if we cured heart disease, for example, people might live a couple of years longer to die of Alzheimer's disease or a cancer or something else. What you're doing, if you cure even one of the major age-related conditions, even cancer, uh, you're choosing your cause of death. You're choosing a different cause of death than cancer. So the notion is, can we preserve people's healthy, independent function when people are free of pain, disease, and disability uh, by targeting all of these conditions as a group instead of picking them off one at a time? And it's been estimated in some very good actuarial studies that if we could delay the rate at which aging processes occur by 2%, we would save $7 trillion in health costs by 2050 in the U.S. alone. Wow, say that again. $7 trillion by 2050. Saved. Saved. Because people would be healthier. And it also because seemed... Because you're, you're removing aging as one of the risk factors that go into, for instance, heart disease. Well, hopefully what you're doing is reducing frailty and the burden of disability in the population, which is what drives health costs. And quite remarkably... 
people who live to be a hundred, which is largely a familial kind of trait. You know, we find families where a lot of people live to be a hundred. Tends to run in families. It's, you know, um, indicating that there are genes involved in this. These people tend to have something that we call compression and morbidity. So in families where we find that people live to 105, we find that the period of disability at the end of the life lifespan is greatly shortened. You've probably met a number, or everybody's probably met people who've lived to be beyond 100, and a characteristic of these people, and it turns out to be true in clinical studies, is that they're highly functioning until shortly before their death, and then they go downhill very quickly. That's, in- always, yeah, that's always part of their story. They lived on their own until they were 101 yeah. or something. And indeed, the last two years of life, as far as health costs go, are the two most expensive years of life. But a person dying at 100, the cost to the health system of their last two years of life is one-third the the cost of a person who dies at 70. Now, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? So you think you can potentially do this with drugs? Potential, and potential is the operative word. Sure. Um, we're pretty confident now we can do some of these things in lower mammals, in mice, and other species that are now being uh, studied, but it's a long leap to humans. And the um, effort over the next couple of years, at least, is going to determine, it, to test, whether these interventions actually work in people. Is it accurate to call them an, an anti-aging drug that is being worked on? I wouldn't call them anti-aging drugs. I'd say that they're agents that target fundamental aging processes or basic aging mechanisms. And there there are four of them that operate in tissues. One is inflammation, low-grade inflammation. This is when the immune system gets revved up and operates in some tissues. Another is cellular senescence, which is a major focus here. Another is a bit of a long term. It's called macromolecular dysfunction. That is when large molecules like DNAs and proteins get damaged. And another is when your stem cells and progenitor cells don't work properly. These are the four processes that occur at in tissues with aging and also at sites of age-related diseases, and they're all interlinked, and we find that if we target any one of them, we affect the rest. So our effort at Mayo has been on all of these um, fundamental processes, but we've particularly had some success and done a lot of work in this process of cellular senescence. When do you suspect that you might get to, to human trials? I know you're fairly early in your research, but... When can we expect that maybe you'll be trying this on human beings? Very soon. Really? You know, that is, it is truly fascinating work. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirkland, for bringing us up to date on research into the aging process. Dr. James Kirkland is an aging specialist and does research in the Robert and Arlene Kogod Center at Aging at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And where do you go to volunteer to be one of these? (laughs) Take the first dose. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss varicose veins with a Mayo Clinic expert and hear about his unusual journey to becoming a doctor. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. For a person with allergies, the holiday season creates challenges. Trees, fireplaces, and even a plate of Christmas cookies can lead to problems. You can make it easier for a person with allergies by being aware of some common holiday allergy triggers. 
Often the center of the celebration, the Christmas tree can also be the reason for your sneezing. You can get uh, runny nose, congestion. Mayo Clinic allergic diseases specialist Dr. Rohit Divikar says that's because trees can carry allergens like mold and dust. You could also have low respiratory symptoms, and this can manifest in wheezing, cough, chest tightness, uh, especially if you have asthma. The smoke from a crackling fire can cause similar problems for a person with asthma. Even scented holiday candles can make some people uncomfortable. And it does trigger symptoms, though not necessarily allergic in nature. On the other hand, nuts and other ingredients baked into holiday treats can cause a serious reaction for a person with a food allergy. Dr. Divikar's advice? So I would recommend making sure you have your medications up to date, you have your prescriptions with you, especially the rescue medications, and be a little more careful as to what you eat or what you're exposed to, and that will go a long way in making sure that your holidays are full of fun and happiness. And be a little more careful as to what you eat or what you're exposed to, and that will go a long way in making sure your holidays are full of fun and happiness. And in other news, during the holidays, many people are crazy busy and find it hard to cook healthy meals. We opt for the drive-thru instead. So the question is, does fast food fit into a healthy diet? Well, here are some tips to consider. Keep portion sizes small. Choose healthier side dishes. Go for apples instead of fries. Go green. Get a salad. Opt for grilled items and watch what you drink. Avoid those sugary drinks. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Varicose veins, you know those gnarled, enlarged veins that usually show up in your legs and your feet? Well, that's because standing and walking upright increases the pressure of the veins in your lower body. And for a lot of people, varicose veins and spider veins, which are a a common, mild variation of varicose veins, they're simply a cosmetic concern. You don't like the way they look. And I don't know of anybody who thinks those big, ugly veins are that... Nice. If only we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for others, for other people, varicose veins can cause aching pain and discomfort, and sometimes varicose veins lead to more serious problems. Here to discuss treatment options for varicose veins, and maybe a little bit more than that, Mayo Clinic vascular surgeon, Dr. Peter Glavitsky. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Glavitsky. Good to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And, you know, we're lucky to have you here because you're sort of in the twilight of your career. And didn't you just tell me that this is your last day or tomorrow is? Uh, this is my last day. Wow. It's and a good thing what we a, got What a, a send-off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, in all of your career, what have you learned about varicose veins? And is that the number one thing people ask you about? Well, uh, this is a very frequent thing that people are asking me about because varicose veins are one of the most prevalent uh, medical disorders. There are more than 25 million American adults who have varicose veins. 25 million? 25 million. What percent are women? And uh, it's a little bit uh, more frequent in women than in men. In younger uh, people, it is more frequent in women. In older people, it's more frequent in men. Is it just a cosmetic concern, or is, is there actually a problem? It is frequently a cosmetic problem, because as you said, there it's a spectrum of problems from spider veins, teleangiectasia, to varicose veins, to advanced chronic venous disease, which includes, unfortunately, venous ulcers which lead to pain, disability, loss of working days. You know, I think another concern uh, for people who have enlarged uh, varicose veins, they're concerned about a blood clot. Is that a complication of varicose veins or no? 
Blood clots are complications of large varicose veins, and there are two types of blood clots. One is what we call superficial thrombophlebitis, and that is more frequent in varicose veins. And the other one is deep vein blood clots that have a lot of other etiologies, but varicose veins is uh, among them. But it, it, you don't have the potential uh, complications with the superficial, with the clots in the varicose veins that you could potentially have with a, a thrombus or a clot in the deeper vein, right? Where it could pa- potentially go to the lung and actually take your life. Uh, actually, you do, but it's rare. Yeah. But some uh, advanced superficial phlebitis, we treat it like they were deep vein thrombosis, really just to prevent a life-threatening blood clot in the lungs. And how have you, you changed in your treatment of varicose veins? Oh, treatment has been revolutionized in the last decade or so. What did you do in the beginning of your practice? When someone had varicose veins? Well, open surgery has been uh, uh, and is, continues to be a major part of our treatment of uh, uh, venous disease. And that's what we have been doing from the beginning, uh, surgically remove varicose veins, either what we call a phlebectomy, which are small incisions to remove individual varicose veins, or a procedure that is a little bit more invasive than the currently used techniques. It's called a stripping. Mm. Remember the two brothers, the two vascular surgeon brothers, wasn't it the Lofgren brothers? That's basically all they did, wasn't it? Strip veins. Uh, the Lofgren brothers and Titi Myers, they, they really ran uh, one of the world's largest vein clinic or vein center here in Rochester, Minnesota. But it's interesting to see that the Mayo brothers actually were very interested in varicose veins, and they published close to 300 uh, varicose vein operation as early as 1906. They even invented a certain type of vein stripper. So the Mayo brothers were very much involved in venous disease, and believe it or not, the very first operation at St. Mary's Hospital was a patient with varicose vein surgery. Is that right? Yeah. And then, uh, so b- back in those days, you were doing vein stripping, or actually removing the, the vein through incisions. Yes, but uh, actually the, the stripper that uh, the Mayo brothers invented, Charles Mayo uh, specifically, uh, enabled you to make two small incision, and with the help of this stripper, remove the entire vein that was under the skin between these two incisions. So it was actually revolutionary at that time. We're bouncing back and forth between the beginning of his practice and what the Mayo brothers were doing. Those two things, not at the same time. Let's just be clear about that, right? <laughs> that is correct. I mean, you've been here a long time, but not back when the Mayo brothers were working. <laughs> that is correct. And actually, the uh, revolutionary uh, change in the last decade or two decades have been the minimally invasive endovascular treatment of varicose veins with laser and radiofrequency. So that's how people are treated now? This is how t- uh, people are treated now. It is called endovenous thermal ablations. And d- tell us about that. How do you do well, that? Well, this, uh, this is done actually uh, as an office procedure. Uh, it is done without an incision just percutaneously with a... Through uh, the skin. Through the skin, just with uh, through a small catheter. You uh, insert the catheter into the uh, saphenous vein, which is the main vein of the superficial system that is uh, frequently the uh, 
uh, only vein that's responsible for the varicosities, but of course the uh, uh, branch varicosities need uh, treatment as well. But the uh, saphenous vein treatment is done with this percutaneous technique without an incision under what we call tumescent local anesthesia. And uh, uh, these veins are sealed by the heat of the catheter that is inserted. Uh, and They're the burned? And, and they are burned. That's exactly okay. the right way. That's why it's called endovenous thermal ablation. Thermal, meaning heat. S- yeah. meaning, meaning heat. So the laser fiber uh, warms up to close to a thousand degrees and the uh, radio frequency fiber is heated up to 120 degrees uh, centigrade. Should everyone get their varicose veins treated or is it just for cosmetic purposes you'd do that? Of course not everyone <laughs> should have their varicose vein treatment uh, treated. I think uh, the, there is a great debate and we just recently participated uh, in a in a, in a great uh, uh, Medicare debate with Metcac which is uh, an agency that actually advises reimbursement for medical patients because there are 25 million Americans who have varicose veins. Now, if you treated everybody, that would really be such a, a huge expense that the uh, the country's healthcare system couldn't afford it. So um, there are specific indications to uh, treat patients with varicosities and those who have more advanced chronic venous insufficiency. And the for sure indications for treatment are? And and for sure indications are symptomatic varicose veins. So they're painful. They are painful, although, again, the pain is something that is subjective. So the, the real for sure indications are those that have advanced disease with visible evidence of more advanced chronic venous insufficiency, which includes skin changes, edema, history of phlebitis, history of bleeding, and venous ulcers. All right, and edema is swelling. Well, it's it's so good to know that you've made so much progress in the field of uh, varicose veins. Nice job. You can retire. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Glavitsky about treatment for varicose veins. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll switch gears and we'll hear about Dr. Glavitsky's personal journey, how magic led to medicine, or at least had a major part in it. Dr. Peter Glavitsky, coming up. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with vascular surgeon Dr. Peter Glavitsky on his penultimate day at the Mayo Clinic. And Peter, tomorrow is the, is the last day, but you have one of the greatest stories ever with regard to not only where you grew up, but how you got into medicine and how you got to the Mayo Clinic. Can you share that with us? This could be your last opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I went to a medical school in uh, Budapest, and uh, there are a lot of reasons why I went to medicine. And one of the most important is that my father was a tremendous role model for me. And uh, already at age six, I declared it in the family that I would like to be a professor of surgery. Is that what your father was, a professor? My father was actually an internist and a neurologist, but he had a good friend who was a surgeon. And and so I wanted to be a little bit different than my father, but indeed stay in the profession. But at the age of six. You were six years old. That's right. And then 
you know, things went well, and I, I got into uh, high school and uh, medical school. And uh, interestingly, on the way, I met a colleague of my father who was an amateur magician. <laughs> and uh, he, sh- he gave us a magic show, and I tried to do some tricks, and he kind of realized that I am tr- not only interested, but I have s- a certain talent. So he became my mentor. And at age 14, I participated in a uh, Star Search television competition in Hungary that that was called The Hungarian Idol. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I got first prize. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Do you remember what you won for for first place? Well, uh, the the, the first prize was that uh, we were allowed to uh, attend a World Youth Festival in uh, Finland, Helsinki. And so I could perform in uh, uh, for an international audience. And you were how old then? Age fourteen. 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 And then I got I got into uh, um, uh, the medical school, and I certainly you know I was looking for what's the area in surgery that I liked, and uh, there was one uh, position open at the uh, cardiovascular clinic. And the vascular surgeon was a good friend of my father, and actually he took me, and, you know, after two weeks, I really loved vascular surgery. So um, I did my residency, and then I I got a scholarship to Paris, and I worked with a very famous uh, professor, Professor Cervell, who... Uh, a couple of times during the year I spent there, disappeared and came back and, and told us about uh, his trip. And I asked him, where did you go, sir? He said, I went to the Mayo Clinic. He said, why From did Paris. you go to the Mayo Clinic? Yeah. He said, monsieur, the Mayo Clinic is number one in the world. <laughs> so I thought, if the Mayo Clinic is number one in the world, what am I doing in Paris? Right. <laughs> Why wouldn't I be there? Rochester yeah. so much better than Paris. And this is how I, I actually ultimately got to uh, uh, Rochester. I was just searching, uh, and uh, I found a physician, Dr. Alexander Schirger, who had some Hungarian relatives and uh, really took me under his wings. He uh, he got uh, one of his patients uh, came up with a scholarship, the Bestor Brothers, and I was I became the first Bestor Fellow. And exactly 35 years ago, in uh, July of uh, 1981, I started here as a research fellow. The Bestor Brothers, I I know them also. They're from Illinois, right? That's Geneseo. That's right. And they actually provided the money to allow you to come here to do additional uh, training. That's right. And Dr. Sher was your mentor a great right. guy yeah. amazing what about, story what about your uh, the physician in Paris your teacher in Paris was he impressed when you said I'm going to Mayo Clinic he didn't know it at that time but he certainly was ex- uh, impressed 10 years later when I met him at a meeting I said well where are you uh, Peter he didn't, <laughs> he didn't remember my last name mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I said well I'm at Mayo Clinic <gasps> You are at the Mayo Clinic, and <laughs> since that time, I was I was his most favorite student. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Uh, have, has there ever been a chance when you've used magic in your practice of medicine? I actually he's used, used some of it in my room. Actually, has he really? He's got some of the best hands I've ever seen. And <laughs> every once in a while, I would get into trouble with a blood vessel, and Peter was always there. So um, my patients know it. My door card has a magic hand and a magic a top hat, and uh, I. Uh, um, interesting enough, when I became a named professor, I got the uh, uh, 
um, professorship that was uh, made in honor of Dr. Ali Beers, who, as you know, not only was a, a world-famous surgeon, but he was a very gifted magician. What? So we found <laughs> Are each magicians and surgeons the one and the same here? We found each other uh, in magic, and uh, actually we performed together with Dr. Beers at uh, one of the uh, um, meetings of the Minnesota Surgical Society. Oh and that, you know... Launched your ma- magic career. Magic helped me all along my life, in my life, you know, everywhere. It's pretty amazing. So tell yeah. us what you're going to do now. I mean, you retire uh, tomorrow from your surgical practice, from uh, the Mayo Clinic. You've been here, what, 30, uh, how many years? 35 years 35. and 29 on the staff. And uh, I became the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Vascular Surgery, which is the uh, main journal of uh, vascular surgeons and the Society for Vascular Surgery. And that is something that I'm going to uh, uh, do, hopefully, in the next six years. I'm imagining you down on the Peace Plaza or in local coffee shops performing magic. Is that Are you going to be doing more magic now that you're retiring? And, and I am sure that I'm going <laughs> to uh, do uh, some uh, more magic. I am a member of the uh, Magic Castle, which is the uh, largest private magic club in Hollywood, California. So when we travel to Los Angeles, we always visit the castle. And uh, there are a lot of other projects. So uh, tell me about the last 35 years practicing medicine here at Mayo Clinic. What is What are your, some of the things that you're going to remember Maybe fondly or maybe not so fondly. Uh, every <laughs> Let's day, go with the fondly. <laughs> every day is a pleasure to work here. That's that's the way I can sum it up. This is an unbelievable place, you know, where indeed people who are devoted this, to this profession, they should come and practice here. Dr. Shives <laughs> and myself, we have worked together, you know, many times, and together we are so much better than just, one of us. Was this a hard decision for you? Of course it was a hard decision. It's always a hard decision. And, you know, everybody asks me, my patients are crying. They are asking me why yeah. I'm retiring. Yeah. But uh, the fact is I'm 68 years old, and you must make a decision what the right – there is no right time. But I prefer to retire at a time when I think I am the best and when – when I say that I retired, not 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 when Dr. Shives asked me, how come you don't uh, you haven't retired yet? <laughs> now, I always love hearing the stories uh, about how you got from Hungary to Paris to to here, and you've continued to do the the magic, which has been a hobby of yours for so long. How many magic shows you do a year? Do you think? Well, obviously, I do much less now than what I used to do, but I used to be uh, uh, pretty good, and I got a second prize at the World Championship of Magic in 1973 in Paris. <laughs> and uh, and when I was a young uh, uh, surgeon uh, in Budapest, that was the only way to come out to uh, attend medical meetings, to uh, arrange a magic show, get an exit visa as a magician, because as a physician, they didn't let me leave. It was a communist country. Yeah. So you used magic so to I, go to medical conferences? Absolutely. Every time. Every time. Wow. Dr. Peter Glavisky, congratulations on your retirement, magician, and master basket or surgeon. Really enjoyed having you on the program. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much, Tom.
For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.